0: Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, so the first one is How did um, I formulate my approach to politics? Okay, how did I formulate my approach to politics? And you know, my story is that I, um, when I was in college, um, I was doing a lot of ministry, I was doing, um, I was leading a unity um, movement at, I went to, um, college at Berkeley and there's like 20, 30 odd fellowships on campus. And I was really trying my best to unify the campus fellowships, right. So that we could, you know, evangelize, do campus evangelism. We could have campus wide prayer, all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, since then I, I, when I was a student, I helped plant a fellowship, um, 2 years after I graduated from college I planted a church as a pastor and basically I've been working with young adults you know for 20 years now right I've been working with young adults for 20 years and when I was in college I didn't care at all about politics I had some friends that were really into politics and I was just like I don't care you know like I'm all about the kingdom <laughs> I'm about the kingdom of God right I don't care about your political stuff I care about praying and seeking the Lord, and, and, and going after the kingdom of God. Um, but as I continued to work with young adults, what I saw was that there was so much overlap between politics and what we believed about the Bible. And that overlap um, became more and more apparent over time. And a lot of the things that I had been somewhat concerned with when I was, you know, a younger believer, I began to see how much they actually affect people. And what I noticed is that people who would really get into liberal politics, who would become very passionate about liberal politics, almost all of them either left the faith or they um, they became very liberal in their theology. Right? It might have started off as liberal political positions, but over time, what I saw consistently, and I saw this with People that I was discipling, I saw this with close friends of mine. What I saw is that that these these liberal political convictions almost always took them into very liberal theological positions, where they really started to question um, the authority of the scripture. They started to you know um, they started to have totally different views of you know um, of Christianity, and so I saw this pattern again and again and again and again. And um, what I realized is that politics and religion are deeply intertwined. You can't get away from them, right? And and because at at the heart of it, we're dealing with worldview. Okay, at the heart of the matter, we're dealing with worldview. And your worldview, what you, the way you see the world, really affects what you believe is right or wrong. And that that influence and affects your politics and your theology, right? So to me. They're they're somewhat inseparable, okay? Now, to be clear, it's not that, you know, the Bible has something to say about every conceivable political issue, per se, right? I'm not saying that as Christians, we all have to be on the same page in terms of, like, you know, what we think tax policy should be in America or something like that, right? I, I think there's a lot of room for us to, you know, have spirited debates and conversations on those things. But what you're going to find is that on a whole number of very deeply held political beliefs... And theological beliefs, there's going to be a ton of overlap, okay. And um, and what I've found is that it, it's because it's it's because at the at the root of the issue we're dealing with worldview, okay. So let me talk a little bit about worldview because I think most Christians don't understand how their worldview is really more what I would call humanist, secular humanist, than biblical, okay. And so let me just give one example. All right, the Bible assumes that there is an entire spiritual realm filled with spiritual beings, right? Like angels and demons, and they're constantly interacting with humans, okay? This is something that a lot of Christians will read in the Bible, and they'll be like, yeah, that's kind of (laughs) weird. Yeah, I don't know what I think about all that angel-demon stuff, right? And the reason is because it's a different worldview than the humanist worldview, okay? The, the humanist worldview is um, very common and popular even amongst Christians. And what I mean by that is that it—how do I put this in a short amount of time? I'm trying to not take too much time on this question. But if you don't believe in demons and angels, you don't have a biblical worldview, does that make sense? A biblical worldview, the way of seeing the world, if you're gonna see it the way that the biblical author saw it, they saw angels and demons as being intricately, you know, involved in the affairs of men, right? Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, right? The spiritual forces of wickedness. Okay, so what Paul says is that we're actually in a war with these beings. But the truth is, I'm sure all of you guys have either struggled with that aspect of scripture before, or you know people who are like, you know, other Christians who are like, you know, angels and demons. I don't know if I really, I don't know if I really believe in that kind of stuff, right? And what you're dealing with there is you're dealing with a worldview issue, right? Because these are two different worldviews, okay? And what a lot of Christians don't understand is that they're Christian, but they actually have more of a secular humanist worldview than they do... Of a biblical worldview, okay, and I'll I'll give a couple more examples, right? Paul, for example, when he went to Athens, okay, Athens was like the 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 world center of learning, and you know it was it was a, a huge metropolis where the greatest scholars of the day, you know, debated. We we could think of it as something like. You know, Boston or something. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it's much, much greater than Boston is today. Let me put it that way. Okay. Um, and Paul goes there and he basically rebukes. This is in Acts 17. And he says, You know, uh, you guys, I see you're worshiping many gods, but let me tell you, there's only one God. And in times past, he allowed people to worship these other gods in their ignorance. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Right. And this is, you know, this is different than the gospel that is preached oftentimes in America. Okay. A lot of times the gospel that you get in America is like, hey, God has an amazing plan for your life and he wants to bless you and he wants you to be happy and he wants you to live with him forever. Right. And see, that's a gospel that everyone is like, I like that gospel. Right. Like, because that gospel is consistent with the humanist worldview, okay? A humanist worldview, if you're a, a pure secular humanist, what you believe is that there, you know, no religion is actually real. They're all man-made fictions, and we make them for ourselves, for our own pleasure, right? So most people, they're fine with you being a Christian, right? Yeah, we'd like that you're a Christian, okay? Except they don't like it when you start saying, oh, but... It's not just something that I believe. It's something that you have to believe too, or you're going to be judged. (gasps) Right? Now you're stepping into a different worldview, right? Because they're fine with you having your own religion. Whatever religion makes you happy is fine, right? But as soon as you start saying, oh, and now, and you also have to have this worldview, now what you're doing is you're stepping outside of a secular humanist worldview. Now your religion doesn't serve you. Now you're saying, that, you know, you're pressing your beliefs on me and you don't have the right to do that. Does that make sense? But that's actually what every single biblical leader did in the Bible, (laughs) right? Like, that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. That's what all the apostles did because they're not secular humanists, right? They don't believe that you can believe whatever you want as long as it makes you happy. They believe that Jesus is... The rightful ruler of heaven and earth, and that all men owe him their allegiance, right? And that he's going to return to judge all nations. Okay. See, this is the part of Christianity that is of a different worldview. So, what you're going to find is you're going to find a lot of Christians that don't like this part of Christianity or that don't want to talk about it or don't have anything to do with it. And that's because it's a different worldview. Am I making sense? Because you can turn Christianity into a humanist religion. And the way you do that is like, hey, Jesus was the great lover of men and he wants to teach you how to love your neighbor better, right? And, we, and we're and we all going to become more like him and be more loving, okay? That sounds Christian. It's actually a different religion. That's a secular humanist worldview. Does this make sense? Okay, I'm trying to do this in a very short amount of time to really hit at the essence, but I understand we're, we're talking about pretty big concepts here, okay? So, when it comes to worldview, the great question is what's right and what's wrong, okay? From a secular humanist perspective, well, there is no God, right? There's no power higher than man. So right and wrong is really whatever we we decide it is, right? Whatever people decide is right and wrong. Whatever's most popular, that's what's right and wrong. And so we have the power to define it. We have the power to change it, right? It's 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 really what we want to do okay and that is that is contrasted with the Christian religion where we believe that there's an ultimate there's a God who has his own sense of right and wrong and that we are going to be judged by his criteria does that make sense okay and that's it's a different worldview does this make sense okay so when we're getting into these issues what happens is a lot of people start to align with secular humanist values, and what they find is that it makes the Bible offensive to them in different areas, right? It makes the Bible, like, they don't, they don't understand, it starts with they don't understand that part of the Bible, but over time, if their heart really connects to these secular humanist values, then what happens is it's, you know, they find those parts of the Bible offensive, okay? And so there's a lot of different areas where we talk about this, but like I said, you know if you're fine as long as you say, hey, Jesus loves you and I love you too. That's fully consistent with the secular humanist worldview. You're not gonna have anybody mad at you. But if you say homosexuality is wrong, oh yeah, now you've stirred the hornet's net, right? The hornet's net is stirred up and now they're after you, right? Why? Because what you're doing is you're attacking the very heart of the secular humanist worldview when you say stuff like that. Okay? Now, what I want you to understand is that there's a reason why Jesus was persecuted and crucified. It's the same reason why Paul was stoned, <laughs> right? Why he was probably ultimately executed. It's the same reason that all the apostles were martyred. It's the same reason that Jesus says, you know, if you if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What, what Jesus is literally saying is that If you're actually going to be my disciple, the world will hate you because what you're doing is you're declaring war on the worldviews that compete against my worldview, and that will offend people, okay? If we're doing Christianity right, we are going to offend people. It is impossible not to because that's the biblical model. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Right? Like, all blessed are you when people slander you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Right? Again and again, we are going to see that Jesus is warning his followers if you're going to really follow me, then the world will hate you. The world cannot love you, right? Because we're not of the world. Okay? Does this make sense? Okay. The reason why I have to go into all of this is because. This is the great question today. Are we just going to speak Christian truths that overlap with secular humanism? Those are the ones that are not controversial, right? If we go tell people Jesus loves them, has a great plan for their life, there's nothing controversial about that. Nobody's going to hate you. But if you start saying, you know, homosexuality is, is a sin and is wrong, okay, now you're making trouble, okay? And I'm just being real. The default position for most churches, especially on the coasts, okay, like you guys in, in near Seattle, is that they don't want to touch any of those issues. They don't want to touch any of those issues, and it's not because you know even like a lot of pastors that believe like there's a lot of pastors. I you guys are at a Korean church? It's a Korean church, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Most Korean churches believe that homosexuality is wrong. And I'm sorry to to fixate on on this issue. It's just because we all understand how controversial that statement is right now, right? Like most Korean pastors believe that, that it is wrong. But the vast majority of those same pastors will say, but don't, don't talk about it, right? Don't mention any of those things. Why? Because we're just gonna offend people, right? And my problem with that is that if we as the church don't disciple our people on this whole realm of issues that are potentially offensive to people, then what's going to happen is all those people, our people, are going to be discipled by the world on all of those things. If the church doesn't talk about it, if they don't come to understand why the Bible says what it says about some of this stuff, well, then what's going to happen? Then they're going to hear this barrage from their social media, Right, from the media, from the schools, from everything else, and they're going to be discipled in all of those things over time. And I say that because I've seen that a million times at this point. I've seen that so many times, right? I had a discussion, I was interviewing for a job with a church, and I was telling the senior pastor, We have to address these things. We have to address homosexuality. We have to address abortion. We have to address, you know, Marxism. We have to address these things. And he's like, No. No, I don't want to. I don't want to address any of that. And as he was telling me, you know, we were continue talk, I was trying to convince him and to help him to understand why it's important. Why, if we don't address these things, then what's going to happen is all the young people we're discipling, they're all going to be discipled by the world on all of this, and it's going to pull them farther and farther away from a biblical worldview, right? And um, and we got to talking, and he was telling me about his his kids, and his kids were both sociology majors at NYU, and I, it, when he said that, I already knew. I'm like, oh, they're already discipled by the world, right? He's already lost them at this point, okay? As he was telling me, I was like, he's already lost them. I got to know them. Sure enough, they were not Christian. <laughs> they were nominally Christian, but they were super liberal, right? And I just know from experience, when people get super liberal in their politics— what that means is that the, the parts of the Bible that disagree with those things, they've already rejected those things. Okay? But the Bible is a, is a whole. It all fits together if you understand it correctly. So you can't just take the most offensive parts of the Bible and say, oh, it's okay, I don't believe that stuff, but I believe the rest of it. No, what that means is that you're morphing into a, a humanist type of Christianity. Right? It's not actually Christianity. It's actually a Christian humanism. Okay, and unfortunately, that's become so prevalent now among so many churches that people don't realize that they're not even in the faith. They they believe that they're in the faith, but they're not. Okay, and you know that's probably a whole other topic that we could go into quite a bit here. But I'll just finish up this question with a couple different points. Okay, Um, I don't think we need to be more political than the Bible is. All right. My, my, when it comes to being political as, as Christians and as pastors, all right, my only argument is that if the Bible addresses it, then we cannot not address it, right? I'm not saying, like, I, I went to a church recently where they were, you know, he was preaching Psalms um, 2, which is a phenomenal chapter of Scripture, and the entire point of the message was that, you know, the World Economic Forum is the fulfillment of Psalms 2, and, um, I, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with the world economic Forum and stuff like that. It's a major political, you know, hot potato right now, but I heard that message and I was like, I, it really rubbed me the wrong way. Cause I'm like, Hey, I don't mind if you say and one way that Psalm two could be fulfilled in our time is through the world economic Forum. That's one example, but you know, I don't like it when we just turn the Bible into just pure political, whatever. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm not saying we need to be more political than the Bible. All I'm simply saying is that if the Bible addresses something fairly clearly, then we are obligated as Christians to also stand for it. And this is what Jesus says. He says, if you're ashamed of one of my commands, then I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. Like, it's a clear warning. Right, that we should not be ashamed. Like Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And you have to understand, Paul was ridiculed when he preached the gospel. What you're going to see if you read the book of Acts is that whenever he brings up the resurrection of the dead. right? In Jewish culture, the resurrection of the dead you know, was an established point amongst the Pharisees. But when he started preaching the resurrection of the dead to the Greeks, they're like, oh, this guy's crazy. This guy's a nutcase. This guy's talking about zombies, people coming back from the dead, right? And it said they made fun of him. They ridiculed him. And that that was pretty consistent for Paul. And that's why Paul said, but I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So even though he was ridiculed and rejected all over the place, and in many places he was actively persecuted, right? He was determined that he would not be silent on what the Lord had told him to boldly preach. Does that make sense? And I think our heart needs to be the same, okay? Now, as a couple of further examples, Jesus preached or Jesus taught explicitly on some very political issues, okay? It's sometimes hard for us to, to know this because we don't understand the historical context. If you guys remember, um, they, they asked him a question. Well, this is one example. They asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And it says they were trying to trap him. Well, we have to understand why that's a trap. The reason is because... In Israel at the time, there, was, there, there were kind of two sides, okay? And one side was the pro-Rome side, all right? And the pro-Rome side said, hey, God has allowed the Romans to rule us. Therefore, we need to pay our taxes to them. Therefore, we need to obey their commands, right? Therefore, we need to do all this. And, but then there was a second side. And the second side was like, God We are not to be ruled by Rome. We are to resist them completely. We are not to pay our taxes. We are to revolt insofar as we can, right? One of Jesus' disciples was Simon the Zealot, okay? The Zealots were that group. The Zealots were the most passionate about resisting Rome, okay? So this is why they wanted to trap him with this because it was a highly charged political debate in Jesus' day. And no matter how he answered it, what was going to happen is he was going to find that half of the people were going to be pissed at him, right? If Jesus said, you know, don't pay your taxes, then all the zealots would be like, yes, right? And support him and they would love him. But then if they said, don't pay your taxes, then they could charge him, right? With treason against Rome. But if they said, do pay your taxes, then what would happen is all the zealots, all the people who were the most passionate people looking for the Messiah would be against Jesus because Jesus would be a Rome lover. Does does this make sense? That's why it was a trap. Okay? But Jesus answered the 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 question. He said, "Pay your taxes to Caesar." Right? If you know the story, whose inscription is on this denarius? Right, Caesar's. "Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's." What he's saying is, "You must pay your taxes, but render to God that which is God's." Right? And he he makes the 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 spiritual reality of the kingdom more important than the physical reality of paying their taxes. Does this make sense? I'm trying to, you know, explain this really quickly. But my only point is this, this was a highly charged political question, and Jesus answered it, okay? He answered it. And what you're going to see is that that's not uncommon in Scripture. I'm just going to give one more example, okay? In the Old Testament period, um, if you're familiar with the history of Israel, Israel split into two. There became two kingdoms, a northern northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah, okay? Now, this became a big problem for the northern kings because... All the Israelites were commanded three times a year, they had to go to Jerusalem to get, offer sacrifice at the temple, all right? If you were a Jew, three times a year, you had to, it was commanded in the law of Moses, you had to go down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices there, and right, for the feasts, okay? But that became very inconvenient for the northern kingdoms, right? So what they did was they said, no, don't go down to Jerusalem Stay up in in Israel, and then we'll create alternate worship sites at Dan and Bethel. and they created, you know they they had golden calves there, and they wanted the Israelites to give their offerings there. So if you're familiar in the Gospels, thousands of hundreds of years later, right, Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman was a descendant of the Northern kingdom, right? And she said, you know, you Jews, meaning you people from Judah, say that we're to worship at Jerusalem right? But our fathers say that we're to worship at these mountains up in the north. And what what she's talking about is that ancient debate. It was a political debate, right? And that was a huge political debate. If you're familiar with it, it's called the sin of Jeroboam. And what you're going to find is that God repeatedly rebukes the northern kings, right, for the sin of Jeroboam and sends prophets to tell them to repent of this, right? But you can see this is a huge, ancient political debate. Does this make sense? Okay. And and the prophet's job was to go into that hugely charged political topic and to declare the word of the Lord. And they got persecuted for it like crazy. Right? Because the northern kings did not want their people going to Jerusalem to worship. Okay. All right. That's just a couple examples. Uh, maybe one last one. We see John the Baptist. He rebukes... Um, well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get into that one later. Okay. All right. The second, the second thing that I want to address on this particular topic is a lot of Christians don't understand that God is moving throughout history. All right. God is moving throughout history. A lot of times we tend to think, oh, God's not really involved in the affairs of men. He just wants people to go to heaven and that's it. He just wants people to believe in Jesus, but he doesn't really care, right. What's going on politically or what's going on, but, that, but that's not the truth, okay? The truth is that God is actively involved in history. And this, to me, is such a shame that most Christians don't know any of their history. Because our history is amazing, brothers and sisters, okay? The history of Christianity is amazing. And what we've seen is that God has raised up great men and women of faith who have shaped the course of history through their faith, okay? Okay? Like what we saw was that when Christianity spread initially, you know, the early Christians, they were persecuted like crazy. I don't know if you know the stories, they were martyred, they were thrown in lions den, you know, in, in in the Colosseum and fed to you know, fed to lions. They were crucified all over the place. Okay. But these Christians would not back down. And over the course of time, they started to inspire all the Roman people. And so Romans started converting, right? Converting to Christianity because the Christians were were caring for the poor right? Christians were, you know, inspiring people to believe that maybe this is a better way. And so Christianity was sweeping through the Roman Empire, and it changed so much of ancient culture, right? Like, we take women's rights today for granted, but you have to understand, Christianity is really the force that revolutionized how, you know, the world saw women, right? It was through this this idea that men and women are equal in the sight of God, right? Like, that men are to love their wives, right, as Christ loved the church and and gave his life up for them. This was a revolutionary concept in Rome, right? That's not how it worked in Rome. In Rome, women were property, right? Like, this is a very different perception, but it radically changed history. And, you know, when we look at America, I, I always try and help people understand this. America was birthed out of the First Great Awakening, okay? The First Great Awakening was really, it was a spiritual movement that really emphasized two major truths, okay? The first truth was that you had to be born again. And the reason that was important was because before the First Great Awakening, most Christians believed that they were saved because they got baptized when they were little kids, right? They got sprinkled with water when they were little kids. And so they're oh yeah, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, everyone's a Christian. But what started to happen in the First Great Awakening is these leaders started to get conviction that unless you had a born-again experience, unless you came to a place where you really recognized your sin and repented before the Lord and and had a real change of heart, right, then you, you were not saved. And they started to preach this with real passion. Like, you know, there's a famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God right? Jonathan Edwards. And he's preaching this and he's saying, you, I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about those people out there. I'm not talking about the heathen. I'm talking about you. Right. And what started to happen is this great conviction started to come upon the church and Christians or people who had thought of themselves as Christians their whole lives. They realized I'm not really saved. I don't really know God. I haven't really repented. And all of a sudden they start, there's massive waves of repentance all throughout the colonies in America. Okay, and this started a movement where there were new light churches that received the revival and old light churches that rejected the revival. It became very controversial. The revival was controversial, very controversial in its time, okay? And then um, leaders like George Whitfield started to preach this, this message and it was that all men are created equal, okay? Now, we take that for granted today. We all believe that all men are created equal, but you have to understand, in those days they did not believe that, okay? In those days, you know, the, the, the structure of society was feudalism, all right? And if you're familiar with feudalism, you've got a king, you have nobles, and then you have commoners, something like that, right? And so you don't believe, if you're a peasant, if you're a commoner, you don't believe you're as great as a noble or as a king, right? But what happened is George Whitfield started to preach, you know, if, if any man is in Christ, he is greater than the king of England right? And they started to preach this with such incredible um, conviction and power that what started to happen is that in the American colonies, the people started to demand a new form of government, a government that was by the people, for the people, where all people were recognized as equals, where no man was greater than another, where the law, you know, constrained the leader of the nation just as much as the common man, right? And, And that was really what birthed the American Revolution, okay? That birthed the American Revolution, and the American Revolution birthed constitutional republics all over the earth for the next couple hundred years. Does this make sense? It's a move of God. It's a move of God. God was actively involved in this, okay? And and it's, it's the same thing with the Second Great Awakening. If you study the Second Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening was the reason why slavery ended. And look, there's this version of of the history of slavery that has become popular in America today. I just want to say it's the most evil, twisted version of history that normally gets preached. And it goes something like this. Like, white people created slavery, right? And white men created slavery, and we were the slave masters over all the other peoples, okay? This is such a bunch of garbage, okay? This is such a bunch of garbage. Slavery was... Universal. It's slavery was a part of every major empire in history. Okay. Do you know that the that slaves that came from Africa, only five percent of slaves that came from Africa went to North America? Okay, 95% of the slave trade, right, went to the Ottoman Empire and to South America primarily. Those were the two major um you know places where slaves went from Africa. All of that gets written out of history. In fact, you know what the real history of slavery is? It's about how God started to move, specifically starting in Britain. And leaders like William Wilberforce, a Christian, okay, a Christian um, parliamentarian, okay, who's part of parliament, and he started to have this burning conviction that God wanted to end slavery. And what happened is all the people around him were like, what are you talking about? Right? The Bible has slavery in it. Right? Like, what do you mean God wants to end slavery? But he had such a conviction that the Lord wanted to end slavery in his time. Every year he passed a resolution, right, to end the slave trade in England. And what happened was William Wilberforce and the abolitionists of England, because of these convictions that they felt like they were getting from the Lord, they pushed the abolition of slavery. Okay? And what happened was there was a movement called the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening, really, it caused the abolition movement in America to go crazy. Okay? There would not have been an end to slavery in America except for the Second Great Awakening. All right? It was the Second Great Awakening that caused the, the pro-abolition side to rise up and to say, we believe that slavery is wrong, that God wants to end slavery. And at the time, the people that started saying that first were all considered extremists and fanatics. Okay, because there's, oh, there had always been slavery, but the second great awakening lit a movement, lit a a fire on the movement. And what happened is that movement grew and became super powerful, right? And it caused the civil war and everything. But then what happened is Britain, most notably, but also America and many of the Western European nations that got conviction on this because of the Christians, what they did was they forcibly ended the slave trade all over the world. Okay, the British they started they started to um, bar not barricade what's the, blockade they started to blockade the west coast of Africa they started seizing suspected slave ships they they shut they shut down the slave trade by force because they believed that God had called them to forcibly shut down the slave trade right and when when they sent a letter to the Ottoman Sultan and he and he was like what do you mean you're shutting down the slave trade are you crazy He's <laughs> like You've got to be crazy, right? He was, so, he was completely befuddled, right? But this, was what, this is the real history of slavery. It's how Christians ended slavery, okay? And the reason why I say that is because the slavery issue is almost exactly like the abortion issue today, okay? It is almost exactly the same issue, and that's the dehumanization of an entire people group for the sake of convenience, okay? Today... There's a debate over whether human fetuses are people. Okay? Of course they're people. Of course they're people. How could they not be people? How can we protect eagles' eggs and not human fetuses? Right? It, it, the only reason why there's a debate is because the abortion industry upholds the entire idea that sex is free. Right? It's okay to have sex with whoever you want. Right? Because there's, nobody gets hurt as long as these fetuses are not actually people. If they're people, then you can't have sex with whoever you want. right? If the fetuses are people, and we have to care for them like people, then what does that do? It means that we have to be very careful about who we have sex with. Do you understand? That's, that's what the abortion debate is really about. Okay? The, the dehumanization of our own fetuses is really what upholds this entire idea of free sex and sex has no you know there's no downside to it we can all do it it's fine it's healthy it's good okay but it's the same thing that we were doing with africans the exact same thing dehumanizing them saying they don't deserve the same rights why because it's beneficial to us okay it's the same reason why hitler dehumanized the jews because the jews were incredibly wealthy Okay? It's the same thing. And we see this again and again throughout history, where we start saying these people are not fully human and don't deserve the same rights as the rest of us. Okay? It's the same exact debate. And the problem is that we as Christians, there is there's no argument from scripture, zero argument from scripture, okay, that a fetus is not a person. We see several examples in scripture. of how God recognizes the personhood of a person before they are born. Jeremiah receives his calling as a prophet before he is born. John the Baptist, right, leaps in his mother's womb, right, when she encounters Mary, okay? Because the Spirit has already come upon him. He's already been anointed before he's born. Okay? Psalm 139, for I knew you, I, I knit you together in the secret place before you were born, right? All of this stuff, there's so much biblical evidence. The only reason why Christians are silent on this issue is because they're afraid of being persecuted and they don't have st- solid con- biblical conviction. Okay? And I say this as some it, that was me. When I was in college, I didn't have a, a take on abortion. I didn't know. I was just like I don't know about abortion. And then what happened is this pastor came and he preached the most fiery sermon I had ever heard on this topic. And he was like, you know, if it, if you're being silent on this issue, right? Then you're just like, you know, you're just like the Christians back in the days of slavery who wouldn't say anything. And I was like, that is me, right? I went to the Lord that night and I said, Lord, have I been silent on the most important issue of our times? And I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, yes, you have, right? And I repented before the Lord there because I was a history major. I had studied the history of slavery in America. And I remember being so mad at all the pastors and the Christians who didn't fight against slavery in our past. But then I realized, but that that's me. <laughs> the issue of my time, I'm not speaking into it because I don't have the conviction and I don't have the boldness to take the persecution that would come, right? And that was the conviction that I had on the issue of abortion. And now, standing on this side, I see the two issues of slavery and abortion, they're almost identical. It's the same debate we're having 200 years later, okay? It's the exact same debate. Okay. I'm going to move on to the next question. Is it right for us to push or impose our Christian values in politics? It's a good question. It's a good question. Okay. Because the church has a history of persecuting people that disagree with them, right? If you're familiar with them, um, what's that guy? Copernicus? Right. Copernicus who thought that the, you know, the earth went around the sun and he got persecuted for it, right? There's a, there's a history. Here's what we have to understand. Whenever there is a dominant moral position, humans tend to become very dogmatic on it. And what I mean by that is when they don't hear disagreement, they start to think that anybody that disagrees with them must be evil or an idiot. Does this make sense? Now, atheists always point back to, you know, European history, and they go, this is what Christianity does to people, right? Christianity makes people dogmatic. Right? Christianity makes people crazy. They become fanatics, right? And they, let's say they have to persecute people, right? But the truth is, it's all people. All people, whenever a particular worldview becomes dominant in an area, they start to persecute other worldviews, okay? So that happened in Soviet Russia, okay? That happens in all sorts of communist societies. That's happened, I'm sure, for some of you, you know, I don't know exactly how, how bad it is up there in Washington, but look, I was living in California for a long time. If you're up in the Bay Area and you start to question some of the BLM stuff, right, you start to question some of the, the woke narrative, man, people go after you, right? People get really fanatical and extremist on all this kind of stuff, and that's because that's true anywhere, okay? So all that I'm getting at and bringing this up is to say, like, I understand that danger and that fear of us being like, hey, we don't want to push um, a false morality on people, right? Especially one that if God doesn't expect them to uphold that, right? We can't treat non-Christians like they're Christian, right? I've heard that argument many times, right? And there is some degree of truth there, but we have to understand how this works, okay? We have to understand how this works. So first of all, it's, it's, we cannot coerce anyone to faith in Christ, Okay, like God could do that, right? God could just show up, right, in front of the whole world and be like, I am God, worship me, right? He could do that if he wanted to, right? He doesn't, he's not doing that, okay? He's not doing that. He gives people an opportunity to, he gives them an invitation, right? And then he respects their decision on whether they want to trust him and have put their faith in him and whatnot, okay? So I don't think we can co- coerce anybody, nor do I think we should try to coerce anybody to be a Christian, okay? I think just like the biblical apostles and like Jesus himself, we should call people to Christianity. We should warn them of what would happen if they do not do it, but we we cannot force anybody, okay? So just to, to make that really clear up front, okay? But what we have to understand— is that we are constantly living in a world where our worldviews are fighting, okay? And this is what I, I mentioned earlier on. Because what I believe is right, I don't believe it's just right for me, I believe it's right for everybody. And guess what? What, you know, it works the same way on the other side, okay? I get accused all the time, right? If I say that abortion, if I say a fetus is is not, it's, you know, it's not like cutting your hair, right? That's the argument that people want to make today, right? It's like, oh, it's just like getting a haircut. It's dead. It's not, it's not a real person, right? Nobody actually believes that. Nobody actually believes that, right? We all know it's more than cutting your hair, right? People don't have, you know, like women who get abortions in, in many cases, right, will, will ha- be haunted by them because there's a deep emotional thing that you're doing when you get an abortion, okay? But that's, that's the narrative that's out there. And when I say, hey, it's a baby, it's not, it's not like cutting your hair. What happens is I get attacked immediately, right? Why are you putting your morality on me, right? Don't quit trying to put your, your morality on me. And I'm like, excuse me, you try to put your morality on me all the time, right? I live in Colorado. You know, there's a baker up in Denver, little north of Denver. This guy's been sued like four or five times now. Do you guys know about this guy, right? Because he, he owns a, a, bake, a bakery and he makes cakes and he has no problem with anybody buying one of his cakes. But what he had a problem with was there was a gay couple who said, hey, can you make a special cake for us? A unique cake where you write, you know, congratulations on your gay marriage or something like that. And he said, I can't do that because I'm a Christian. I can't make a cake, but you're welcome to buy any of my cakes and do it yourself, right? You know, they went after that guy. They have been been trying to destroy that man for the past decade. They've sued him so many times, right? Because they're trying to destroy him, all right? That is what is happening. Like, I don't see that many Christians doing anything like that. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen it. I know, I'm sure it happens out there, right? I'm sure there's some Christian out there that says, you know, how dare you do this? And like starts hating on people and starts trying to destroy them. And so I'm sure that happens. I've just literally never seen a Christian do that myself. Okay. But I've seen it the other way around a million times. A million times. I've seen it so many times, right, where Christians have been harassed. There was a girl at, at I founded a church in Berkeley, okay? I started, I helped start a church. I ended up leaving that church, but there was a student who became a, a senator, a, a, um, a student senator at Berkeley, okay? And they tried to pass a bill at Berkeley, you know, affirming transgender identity and gay, you know, gay whatever, right? And this student senator, because she was a Christian, she abstained from the vote. Okay. She just didn't vote for it. She said, I'm not going to vote either way on this. Okay. Berkeley tried to destroy her life. All right. They had protests at every student senate meeting. It became a national story. You can look it up. Isabella Chow. Okay. You can look up Isabella Chow. You guys maybe have been a little young. You know, this happened, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, maybe now. Okay. They tried to destroy her life. Okay. They were, they were, they were going after Christians constantly. Okay, what I'm, the only reason I'm am I'm, I'm saying all this is because you have to understand we're at a, we're in a war of worldviews, and what's happening is there's far more persecution against Christians. There's far more people trying to push their their values on Christians than there are the other way around. And yet, many Christians are like, oh yeah, and we can't push our values, you know, we can't you know, try and push our morality while. The world is pushing its morality constantly on us, okay? Now, to be clear, I do not think we should push our morality in that same kind of evil way, okay? Like I said, we should respect people's free will, okay? We should respect their decisions. okay? I'm not trying to say we should try and destroy people and get them fired and all this kind of stuff, okay? I don't think we should do that, okay? But if we're talking about, hey, I believe that homosexuality is a sin, okay? I believe I have the right to say that. I have the right to teach on it. Okay, you don't have the right to ban my book if I write about that at Amazon. You don't have the right to, to sue me and shut me down. You understand they're they're passing hate speech they've passed hate speech laws in Canada, all right, Where pastors have actively gone to jail for saying this kind of stuff now, all right? Amazon has taken all a, a, a huge number of books off the market for saying that type of thing. And it started with homosexuality, but now it's like gender identity. Right? If you say anything against uh, you know, transsexual anything, you're going to get banned. Right, you're going to get shut down in all these different places. And, and the issue is, Christians don't understand. It's not just that you have the right to say it, right? It's that you—it's you, right to say it. Because if we are not bold in proclaiming truth, right, or standing up for the things that we believe in, it's not just that we are, you know, displeasing the Lord, I believe— but it's also, we are allowing our nation to come under a totalitarian influence. And that's what is actually going on, okay? Like, I don't think I, I really have the time. I would love to, but I would love to explain how all this woke stuff, this is all Marxism, okay? It's all Marxism. A lot of people, you know, like BLM, Black Lives Matter, that is a Marxist organization. The leaders of Black Lives Matter, they're not trying to hide it. They're open about the fact that they're Marxists and it's a Marxist organization. Okay. The problem is many people don't understand Marxism. They don't understand Marxism. And so when I'm trying to say, Hey, this is Marxism. It's a different worldview. Let me explain everything. People go, Oh no, you're just, you know, you're just, uh, you know, slandering them, right. Trying to paint them as Marxists." I'm like, no, they call themselves Marxists. (laughs) <laughs> right? Like they're, they they self identify as Marxists, right? It's because I actually understand Marxism. I've actually studied critical race theory. I know, I know the progression of thought. Okay. And that's why I'm warning you that this is an ideology that has caused mass, you know, destruction throughout the 20th century. Marxism is the most destructive ideology in history. Okay. It's the most destructive ideology in history and our generation is flirting with it like we're completely ignorant of the entire 20th century. Right? It's like, oh yeah, it's okay, this Marxism. A little Marxism is good. Excuse me, do you understand the entire history of the 20th century? Like we're Koreans. You understand the great difference between North and South Korea? Is Marxism. Like that's the difference, right? Like, this is not something that we could be like, oh yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's okay. And I'm like, no, you do not understand the spirit of Marxism. Okay? The spirit of Marxism is what it does is it tries to coerce you and intimidate you into being silent. And the greatest enemy of Marxism throughout history has been Christianity. Okay? It's, Christianity has been the major force to fight Marxism right, throughout history. And it's because you cannot silence a Christian who has real conviction. Because a Christian who has real conviction understands that he's going to suffer in this life. I understand I'm going to be persecuted. I understand I might be fired from that job. I understand that people might not like me. But none of that is as important as being faithful to the Lord because I'm going to be judged by him on that day. And I'm willing to suffer for the sake of truth and to speak out forcefully against it. Okay? That's why Christianity is the most effective tool against Marxism, and it's why, if you look at Marxist training throughout history, it's always to ridicule Christians, to intimidate them, to silence them, right? And then, when you can, to persecute them and kill them, okay? That's how it works, right, in Marxist trainings. I'm talking about actual trainings from Marxist countries, you know, the KGB Ah, uh, man, this, this talk is going to get way too long if I go into depth into this, okay? So forgive me, I'm going to stop short there, but all I'm trying to say is we're we're dealing with, with something that Christians don't understand how important it is that you speak out, right? It's not just a matter of personal, you know, belief, it's we're actively fighting against a demonic worldview that is swaying our nation right now, okay? And it can get really, really bad, okay? It really can. Like, I say this as a history major. That I, I study history. I love history. And I'll tell you, you know, Hitler was elected, all right. Hitler was elected, right? Totalitarian societies, they don't just spring up out of anywhere. There's signs to it. And what we've been going through for the past 10 years has all the hallmarks of the encroachment of a, of a totalitarian ideology. Does this make sense? And what I'm saying is that many Christians, the reason why they're not speaking up is because they're intimidated. All right they're intimidated it's like why are you trying to force your morality on me right right or like why are you so unloving okay why are all this kind all these accusations and i remember i spent the, like years trying to defend myself oh i'm not really unloving <laughs> all right i have gay friends right like i have you know like like i i don't have any hatred towards gay people you know like i i love you know people who identify as transgender right and but what i realized over time is that all of this it doesn't matter they don't care that I don't hate gay people, they, nobody cares about that. They care that I would say something against what they believe. They don't care about what's in my heart. Does that make sense? Okay, but what I'm saying is that most Christians are completely silenced. They're totally intimidated. They don't have conviction. And so because of that, they're actually irrelevant. They're not engaged in the battle for our nation because they don't even realize there's a battle going on. All right, I'll answer the final question um, in the last 10 minutes, okay? So Nick asked me, what are some practical ways for Christians to engage in politics? Okay, like practical ways. The most important thing is to pray. The most important thing is to pray, okay? Because prayer is where all your conviction comes from, okay? Without prayer, a Christian does not have conviction because the conviction has to come from the Word of God. The word of God has to give us the confidence that what we believe is true and that it's actually important for us to do something about it, okay? Our prayer life is always tied to the vision that we have, to the sense of mission and purpose that we have. Let me put it to you this way. The Korean church, we're the greatest missionaries, you know, um, of the past generation, all right? We planted churches all over the world, but there's a reason why, because— of the prayer, because of morning prayer, okay? Prayer and mission are always tied together, all right? If you've heard of CREW, it used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ. They're one of the larger, they used to be the second largest Protestant missions organization in the world. Oh, they might have been the largest. They might still be the largest, actually. Um, But that's because they were founded by a guy named Bill Bright. Bill Bright um, was all about fasting and prayer. That guy went on five 40-day fasts in his life, okay? He said fasting is the most important of Christian disciplines, okay? Crew was founded on a culture of prayer and fasting, but what happened is over time, they lost their heart for prayer, and now they're losing their heart for missions. That's always how it works, okay? So the only reason I'm bringing that up is because the only way that you can you can have grace to engage in this spiritual battle is if you have vision in your life, and that only comes through prayer, okay? So being devoted to prayer is the most important thing, Okay? It's where all of our conviction comes from. We receive it from the Lord in the place of prayer. Okay? Now, number two, you've you got to vote. You've got to vote. Like, It's a blessing that we live in a republic. Right? We generally get the policies that the American people want. Okay? So the, the people who vote right, get to determine policy. Right? So Christians have to vote. It's mandatory. You absolutely have to It is your God-given right and responsibility, in my opinion. Okay? I think believers should be voting and not just voting, but they should be advocating for righteous positions. Okay? They should be advocating for righteous positions.? Okay? Now, I, look, I'll be honest, I've gotten a lot of flack for speaking out on some of these issues. I'm sure you guys can imagine. <laughs> right? I've gotten a lot of flack for speaking out on all of this stuff. I don't regret it one bit, okay? I don't regret i't I've, I've, I've been fired how many times, I don't know, four or five times now, okay? Now, to be clear, I I do try to be careful not to get fired. Right? Like, <laughs> I'm not just out screaming at, you know, people like being a maniac or something like that. But what I am saying is that I, I understand. I understand that persecution is going to come and I've determined that it's actually worth it. In fact, I'm, I'm convinced that, the rewards that the Lord will give us on the day of judgment are largely tied to the persecution that we endure. You're going to see that again and again in scripture, okay? Again and again in scripture, you're going to see that Jesus is talking about you're blessed when you undergo rejection, when you undergo slander, when you undergo these things for my namesake, to be obedient to me, okay? So I have this I have this deep conviction about this, which is why I I advocate for the things that I have strong conviction for, Okay? So I mentioned one of the main things I advocate for is abortion. Okay? Why? Because I believe they're babies. I believe that in the same way that my spiritual ancestors fought for people to recognize the humanity of slaves, I feel like in my generation, I'm fighting for our nation to recognize the humanity of these babies. Okay? I believe it's a worthy calling. All right. I believe it's a worthy calling. And so because of that, I have conviction on it. That's why I encourage believers, pray into this issue, vote into this issue. Don't be ashamed on this issue to speak up. All right. Because what happens is if we're ashamed, then what happens is our entire, all of our young people get discipled by the world. All right. I didn't mention that, but yeah, that's really one of the ways that it started for me is I looked on my Facebook wall, you know, back in the day, we all used Facebook. It's probably different now, right? But on my Facebook wall, it was all liberal, anti-God sentiment on my Facebook wall at the time. And I was like, and I was a college student, and I was like, oh my gosh, all the high school kids, like my brother, my brother was in high school. It's like all my high school, all the high school kids, their walls are like this, and they don't know the other side of the argument. They don't even know it. Nobody's speaking out for the other side, at least on my wall. And that's why I had conviction. I have to start speaking out. Right. And when I first started speaking on social media, I was like the only one right on my wall, you know. And man, people went after me. They went after me like crazy. okay. and I learned how to deal with it. At first, it was very uncomfortable, but the same it was conviction. I had conviction. I had to speak out on this. Um, And then I learned over time how to do it well. okay. so what I what I always encourage people is you advocate for the things that you have conviction for. Okay? You don't need to be advocating on some random issue because you believe, you know, your pastor wants you to. Okay? No, the issues that you have conviction for, you believe that this is important to God, all right? Those are the issues that you you should advocate for. Okay? And the last way is that you should consider running for office. Okay? We need Christians running for office. It's very important, specifically for local politics, school boards have become so important. Okay. School boards are so important. They're determining the education for our young people right now. All right. My kids, these school boards are, and let me tell you them, some of them are crazy. (laughs) Some of them are crazy. The stuff they're trying to push on our kids. Okay. And we need believers that have a strong, you know, biblical worldview, a strong sense of right and wrong, moral compass, right. To be able to step in there and to do battle for the sake of our children. OK, like this is important and it's hard for us as Asians, because a lot of times we feel like we're not really, you know, part of the, you know, we're not really it's not our land <laughs> or something like that. OK, but I want to encourage you guys. Um, it's actually way easier for Asians to get elected than for white guys. OK, at least on the coasts, it's like that. It's like that everywhere at this point. OK, it's not easier to get into school. Right? It's harder for us to get into school. But it's easier to run for school board and stuff like that because there are relatively few Asians that are doing that, okay? So that would be my my final encouragement is if you feel a conviction from the Lord to run for office, I would say go for it. Run for office as a servant, okay? The danger is when you get power, people start becoming really crazy, okay? But if you feel like God's calling you to run for office, to serve in that capacity and to stand for righteousness, bravo. I think that's wonderful.
1: I had one quick question. In regards to the, like, the secular and humanistic worldview, what, like, how would you, could you redefine that or, like, yeah? Yeah.
0: Yeah. At its core, the humanistic worldview is one that does not believe that man, it it doesn't believe there's anything greater than man, okay? So men don't, shouldn't worship anything, right? So if you're you're a strong secular humanist, the whole idea of men worshiping something is going to be, like, kind of offensive and disgusting to you right? Like, why would men worship something? There's nothing out there, right? Um, but I would say there's kind of like three main beliefs, okay? Is that there's, there's you know, no true religion. Religion is a man-made, religions are man-made to make people happy, right? So you can be whatever religion you want to be. As long as it makes you happy, do what you want to do, okay? And as I say that, that should probably sound pretty familiar to you guys, right? Like, you probably hear that in the opinions of lots of people around you. That's because we are a dominantly secular humanistic Nation. Okay. I know on polls and stuff like that, you know, it says that we're dominantly a Christian nation, but you guys should understand, like, that's not the truth, right? Most Christians are Christian humanists. They're more humanists than they are Christian, right? Okay. The second tenet is that there's no absolute right and wrong, right? Right and wrong are determined by whatever people say is right and wrong, right? We get to pick what's right or wrong, okay? And when we look at the abortion debate, um, it's very similar. Like, is it a person? Well, we determine if it's a person, right? We can decide when we feel like it's a person or not, okay? And that's, like I said, the same ideology that guided all the dehumanization of history, right? Let me just touch on this for a second here, because it's really important. The entire American civilization is built around the idea that we are made in the image of God, okay? Okay. The whole idea of the American Revolution is that we're created in the image of God, and we're endowed with inalienable rights given to us by our creator. And because of that, no government has the right to infringe on any of our God-given rights. Okay? This is the ideological foundation for America. Okay? Because that ran totally contrary to how it, people used to think before that. They used to think, oh, the king... Our rights come from the king, and the king gives us these things, and nobles gives us these rights, right? But the whole idea of the American Revolution is, no, I'm made in the image of God. Therefore, I've been given these rights by the creator, and no government can infringe on them. Do you understand? This idea of us being created in the image of God, it undergirds our entire system of law. It undergirds all of our understanding of politics and government, okay? That's why if you take that away, it rips out the foundation for everything, okay? Okay? So that, that's the second belief, right? That humans get to determine right or wrong. We get to decide who's a real person, who's not a person, et cetera, okay? And again, to contrast that with the Christian worldview, no, we believe that men, all men and women are created in the image of God. Therefore, I don't have the right to destroy somebody who's been made in the image of God. Does that make sense, the difference of ideology there? Okay, so that's, that's number two. The third one, man, I'm having a memory blank on, I'll throw it on the top of my head. I can't remember, but it's the dominant worldview, right? Like you'd ask anybody, you know, what they believe you're going to get a lot of, yeah, do what makes you happy, whatever makes you happy, man. You know, like you got to create your own purpose. All of this is, is secular humanism. All right. Like what's your purpose in life? You know, the, the dominant answer today is, well, it's whatever you want it to be. You create your own purpose, right? If you find purpose, you know, knitting socks, good for you. Right. You found a good purpose. Right. As Christians, we're like, no dummy, you're wasting your life, knitting socks. Okay. It's not that you can't knit socks. It's that that can't be the purpose of your life. Right. If that's the purpose of your life, you're missing your purpose. Does that make sense? It's a different worldview.
1: So when when talking about like the legality of abortion, like as a Christian, um, So my understanding is typically the argument stems from like uh well every every like every baby basically it goes from every baby right every baby has a life um and so like uh we should we should be fighting for every life um and i agree with that um but i i'm sort of uh unsure about going from that into like the practicality like of the world uh because of how like messy things are um uh, and like as you said yeah like a lo- a huge proportion of these abortions are being done uh like elected abortions they're not in any real like um terrible situation uh or things like that but uh what i'm worried about in completely banning abortions is being unable to skirt the edge cases. Where, uh, yeah, like you will have situations, uh like ectopic pregnancies where I believe right now it's still pretty difficult to determine, um, hard line it like, oh, this is what's going to happen without, uh, things getting too late or things getting too bad. Um, so how, how do you sort of interact with um, though edge cases, they may be, um, sure. like these edge cases.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Um, first of all, the vast majority of conservatives are totally fine with passing, you know, abolition of abortion, except in the cases of rape, incest, or the mother's endangerment, something like that. Right. Cause that's going to eliminate 97% of abortions right? I'm totally fine with passing that type of legislation. The vast majority of conservatives are okay with passing that type of legislation, okay? So I just simply say that because a lot of, a lot of people will say, well, what about, you know, cases of rape or something like that? What are you going to do? And I'm like, okay, that's fine. We can make an exception for cases of rape, and we'll just end all the election-based abortions, okay? I'm fine with, with passing that type of legislation to start. Now, if we're talking just from, like, a more hypothetical situation or point of view, like, is that right, Right? Is it right? I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about a child, right? We're talking about a person. Do we have the right to, you know, kill a one-year-old baby if, you know, let's say if, if the mother and the father dies, right? Do we have the right to kill that baby? Should we kill that baby? That's, that probably wouldn't even be a question for us, right? Because we, full, we recognize it as, a, as fully a person, right? So we can't kill it. We've got to care for it as best as we can okay? And that's the same, it's the same idea. Once a child is, is, you know, impregnated, once conceived, okay, we're dealing with a live human at this point, okay? And we as society need to do our best to care for that child. And this is a case where I absolutely think a lot of mothers need help, all right? And the church should be the very first ones signing up to help. And by the way, we are, okay? The church are the first ones I up to help, okay? We are we're the ones doing the vast majority of adoption. We're the ones who are giving financially to care for people. We're the ones volunteering our time to care for single mothers, okay? It's always Christians at the forefront of all of these efforts, all right? So, yes, we need to do that as a society. And this society, and this is a case when we talk about where should the government be helping out people, this is one of those cases, even as a conservative, where I would say, yes, the government can play a role in caring for children that otherwise would be aborted because, you know, in cases of rape, absolutely. This is a place I'd be down for a bill to be passed funding the care for children as a, you know, as a, you know, who have been born in cases of rape or something like that. Okay. Now, when we're talking about mother endangerment specifically, what I said was that, um, you know, that's a very debatable thing today, medically. Okay. But even if we're talking about real mother in danger, right? meaning in this hypothetical situation, the mother's life would actually be in danger if she were to have this baby. OK, well, historically, theologically, in Jewish understanding, those were cases where abortion was permitted. And I would be open to that argument. I'm very open to that. Right. Because the, the whole idea is life. We're trying to save life. OK, so if we have a situation where the mother's life is seriously in danger, I think though that abortion should actually be permissible in those cases.
1: All right, thank you um sorry Nick you said after this one more question but let's do push on that a bit more um um so uh yeah I, I agree with the I, I agree with what you're saying um and I I do think that's the path that we should be going down but it still feels very murky to me I think so like the question of um like we, as like a society should be taking care of the kids, um, but there doesn't really seem to be a push for these types of issues, um, and also for like the uh, like making rape, uh, making abortion uh, during rape permissible. Uh, my understanding is already uh, that rape is an extremely high bar uh, to uh, conclude, or is, is is already a very high uh, crime to convince, like, in court, mm-hmm. where it's right. already really difficult to show um, people, like, oh, like, I've been raped, like, that entire process is uh, extremely hard on on the woman, and it's also just extremely hard to show, and so uh, my understanding is, like, or Like uh, all the sexual harassment things like that are typically vastly underreported just because of how difficult it is to show these things. Um, And so I just want to push on that idea because it just like that in itself is already like a difficult aspect in life in general. And I feel like it'll be even more difficult when the woman is also placed, uh, like the burden of proof for rape, uh, on top of this nine-month time limit, uh, or e- even shorter time limit for the abortion, right? Uh,
0: let me let me back up because at the end of the day, what we're getting to is a is a is a philosophical ethical question, right? When we're talking about the abortion debate, almost always what happens is we start to focus on the mother, right? And that's that's because the Democrats are pushing that, right? It's a mother's right to choose. It's the woman's right to choose. She's the victim here. She's the one who's going to have to care for the baby, all this kind of stuff, okay? Now, as Christians, we care for the mother, obviously, okay? We want to care for the mother. We want to take into consideration. But we're talking about a holocaust of babies. We're talking about the greatest holocaust in the history of the world. There's nothing that has come even anywhere close to the Holocaust that is happening right now, okay? That I'm saying, if, if these babies are actual people, if they're not people, then this is much to do about nothing, okay? If they're not people, then obviously I'm out of line, we're out of line. But if they are people, then what we're talking about is the greatest atrocity in history. This is the greatest genocide in history, okay? And the question is, are we going to stop that genocide, you know, and are we going to fail to stop it because there, there, you know, there might be a mother who, you know, is not allowed to get an abortion because she has been raped. Does that make sense? Our focus is way too much on the mother, in my opinion. At that point, our focus really has to be on the babies. There are, I mean, how many babies have been killed? 60 million, something like that. 60 million babies in America since Roe versus Wade was passed. I think it's something like that at this point. We're talking about a million babies a year. Nothing comes close to that. No other, you know, cause of, of, of untimely death comes close to a million deaths a year, right? If we're talking about gun murders. You're talking about like three, four thousand a year, and Democrats freak out about every gun murder, right? Talk about how we have to ban guns to stop these gun murders, right? But you have to understand three, four thousand gun murders compared to a million it's not even comparable. These are like, this is a totally different level, right? Of what's happening to these babies. Okay. It's just so it's, it's just, we've become numb to it because we don't see it. And it's, it's becomes, it's, it's so widespread at this point. Does that make sense? So that's why I think our focus really has to be, Hey, we've got a genocide going on here. We've got we've mass, mass murder at a scale that we've never seen before in human history And it's happening in our generation. And that's the that's the sense of alarm that I have. Like we have to stop this. We have to stop this. You know, we have to do whatever we can do to stop it. And do we care for the mothers? As best as we can, we're gonna care for them. But look, at the end of the day, when we're talking about why are all these things happening, it's because mothers and fathers are are not are being evil. Can I just be blunt about it? Okay, we've, ex- we've so accepted this lie in our society that sex is okay. you can have sex with whoever you want. We are overturning thousands of years of, cl- of, of wisdom that was well understood throughout all human civilizations. and just in our like last ten minutes of history, we've gone, you know what? they were all wrong. All those generations that came before us were wrong. In fact, now we have the, we have contraception, we have abortion. now we can all have as much sex as we want, and there's nobody paying the price. No. We're paying the greatest price ever. It's just you're not paying the price. Your babies are paying the price. The babies are paying the price. All the children that are growing up in broken homes because we don't honor marriage as much as we used to, because now it's more about this, does this person make me happy? You have to understand that's not how people thought about marriage. For thousands of years, it wasn't a does this person make me happy. No, it was no, we're doing this for our children. It doesn't matter if this guy makes me happy. It doesn't matter if this woman makes me happy. That's secondary. What matters is that we're going to care for our children together. And we've lost that in our generation. And, and what's happened is we've all become so freaking selfish. right? It's just pure selfishness right? to the point where it's like, is, might that be your baby that you're killing? No, it's for sure not my baby. I'm not even going to entertain that possibility. I'm not even going to think about it. I'm not even going to acknowledge it. And it's like the callousness that has come upon our culture. We don't understand how callous we've become. And all to justify this, uh, this, this rampant, this free sex that has unbelievably destructive consequences, not just for the aborted babies. But look, I, I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't really get into this. But if we're just looking at broken families, it's the same thing. If we're looking at median income rates in America, all the narrative today on the left is like it's white people oppressing black people. No, it's not. It is not white people oppressing black people, okay? It is black people getting pregnant in situations where they should not be getting pregnant, okay? 80%, something like that, of black babies at this point, 70 to 80% of black babies are conceived to single mothers right now, okay? That is, is the, the most terrible, evil thing that's going on. But what we have is we have a neutered church what we should have is we should have a church that is rebuking the heck out of people. Why? Because I don't care if, look, I don't want to stop your fun, right? Like, is that my agenda? Is that what I'm about? No, it's because you are creating children. You think children just pop up out of nowhere? You know, that's the problem. People go like, Oh, I didn't choose to, to have this baby. I'm like, yes, you did. You chose to have it when you have sex. Well, you think that's that has nothing to do with this? <laughs> has everything to do with this, you know? But we live in this culture where it's like, oh yeah, the mother's the victim because she didn't choose to have this baby. Now you're forcing her to have it. No, she chose to have the baby. She chose to have the baby. In 97% of circumstances, she chose to have this baby. All right? Don't tell me that she's a, a victimless, you know, and to be clear, the the father did too. I'm not trying to lay this all on on mothers. The father did too. But we have this culture where it's like, "Oh yeah, I can have sex with whoever I want." No. Let me let me say this. If you are having sex outside of marriage, you have a problem and it's it's killing our society and your children are the ones who are going to pay for it. And I say that on behalf of so many kids that have grown up in broken families. Okay? I say that on behalf of millions at this point of children who have been aborted because their parents didn't want them. I always say this. Is it, is it a sin to not want your baby? Yes. Yes. It's a sin to not want your baby. You should want your baby. You should love your baby. You should desire it. Okay. But the rampant sexual culture that we have has made a mockery of all this. And now we're blaming everyone, but ourselves. Right. And we, we live in this crazy deluded society where the people who are complaining about oppression the most are literally the greatest oppressors in history, All right? It is insanity, the times that we're living in. Okay. Sorry, I'm getting a little ramped up. <laughs> I'm not meaning to yell at you guys, right? Like I, I know so I'm not yelling at you, right? But I'm yelling at the reality of the situation. Like this is the mass delusion we're in as a culture, right? And it's because we have flaunted God's law. We've said, Oh no, we don't need that religion stuff, right? We don't need that Christianity stuff. But that, those commands, obedience to those commands, are at, are at the heart of all of our nation's prosperity. And it should be Christians who are declaring this, right? And standing for it and proud of, our, of, of these commands. And devoted to them. And teaching their children. But we have so many Christians who don't understand any of this and are totally silent. And that's, that's the burden I feel on this issue, right? Like, man, I care about these mothers, but we have to start thinking about the children. The children are getting destroyed in our culture. I counsel so many kids, all right, who have gone through major neglect, major abuse, sexual abuse constantly. Like, I counsel so many young children, right, because of the brokenness of our families today. All right, sorry. I'm gonna get off my soapbox now. I'm off. (laughs) Yeah, no problem, Josh. (laughs) Okay.
1: can i go really quick um i guess so i think one thing that i kind of struggle with when it comes to like voting and and politics in general is it feels like like you have to pick sides instead of issues and and so for like certain you know let's talk like we're voting for the president like the president might believe in certain things that i agree with but they might also support um certain things that i don't agree with and and likewise for the other side And so that's where I really struggle with like voting in general. And and I get kind of confused. And I was just curious, like what your perspective is on that and and your approach to voting is um, given that uh, we can't pick and choose a lot of times and we have to kind of go all or nothing on some issues.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's not a it's not a perfect system, right? The two party system. I was literally just listening to a podcast today about how George Washington was adamantly opposed to political parties. Because he he believed that political parties would divide and destroy the nation, right? I think he's probably right. I think he's probably right. Like, I I don't like the political parties and the reality of how we're divided into two camps and all this kind of stuff. I don't know exactly how to make a better system, right? Um They have some other, you know, we're constantly experimenting. Like Alaska is doing ranked choice voting now. I don't know if you're familiar with ranked choice voting, but it's like basically you can say, this is my first pick, this is my second pick, this is my third pick. And then your second and third pick matters a lot more than in most states, right? In most states, if you, if say you really like the libertarian candidate, but you know, you're just wasting your vote, right? Like he's never going to win. Right, so that that's a kind of a problem, right, of the, the political situation. Okay, so <clears throat> I don't like the system as a whole, and I think there must be better ways to do it. I think all of us kind of feel that way, right? Now that being said, at this point in time, I straight I vote straight Republican. Okay, I don't particularly like the Republican Party. Okay, I think a lot of I'm just being real, a lot of um, politicians in general are very good liars. Like that is the primary skill of a politician, okay? The primary skill of a politician is to not say anything that would offend you and to only say the things that will make you like him and want to vote for him. Right? So, if you're a good politician, what that means is you're a very good liar. That the, the two things go hand in glove, right? So, I don't particularly have a great fondness for politicians in general, okay? But that being said, from my perspective, the Democrat party at this point in time has become so incredibly extreme in a, in a terrible way that I cannot in good conscience vote for any Democrat at this point. Okay. Now I'm not saying, I'm sure there are some decent Democrats out there. I'm not trying to say that all Democrats are evil people or something like that. Okay. But what I am saying is the, the part, the platform that the Democrat party supported, like abortion up until birth, like that is the position that every Democrat in Congress at this point, right? Nobody's even speaking against that. And that's because the democratic party has been pretty much consumed by this modern Marxism. Okay. Modern Marxism leads the democratic party. And I actually, I feel like I understand modern Marxism. Okay. Like obviously we don't have the time to get into systemic racism. Systemic racism is a complete lie. All right. It is a complete lie. And yet it is taken as gospel truth right in the democratic party. Okay. Stuff like that is just, it's so there's so much delusion on the democrat side at this point that i can't in good conscience vote for any democrat right now now go back 30 40 years maybe you know but it's a it's a totally different party at this point you know like we've gone we've gone super far to the left in the past 20 years okay and um that to me is we're way out of balance now could we go really far to the right yeah I've warned about that many times because the way it tends to work is when you swing really far in one direction, there tends to be a counter swing that goes really far back in the other direction. So I'm actually very concerned that we'll, we'll see a major shift rightward in the nation that will get really dangerous. Okay. Like, like I'm, I'm a Trump fan. I support president Trump, but the reason I support president Trump is because he's the perfect president for this period of history right? The period of history where the Democrats control the media, they control the schools, they control all the elite institutions. And so it's like President Trump and everybody's attacking him in Washington. He's like perfect for that. He's like the perfect guy, right? Because he'll just get attacked and he'll just attack back and he'll never get intimidated or he'll never stop, right? He's perfect for that. I would not vote for President Trump if we were farther over on the right side. That to me is a very dangerous situation, right? Because he could absolutely start taking power and abusing it like crazy. Does that make sense? Okay. I I hope that kind of makes sense. But yeah, that's where, that's my paradigm of where we are right now. I think we're super far on the left. And so because of that, I'm trying to get us back towards a healthy middle.
1: But like the other big topic is like homosexuality and like the legalism um, of that. So, um, yeah, so... So I guess my stance or whatever is like, OK, well, homosexuality is wrong, as stated in the Bible. Um, but after that, the line of thought just sort of ends. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, good question. So how can I do this in a short amount of time? Um. My current position right now is I think I agree with Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro says that we should take the libertarian approach, which is that we should not have the government defining marriage at all. Right? Why does the government need to define marriage? There should be certain rights that you can have as part of a civil union. Okay. That would apply to whomever wants to enter into that kind of contractual relationship. Right? The problem is with the redefinition of marriage. Okay. So I'm in favor of that. I'm like, like, Back, you know, back in the day when we were actually having a debate on gay marriage, okay, I was always for civil unions, right? Which is the idea that if you were a gay couple and you wanted your relationship to be recognized by the state so that you could visit your partner in the hospital, so that you could have your property transferred to your partner after you died, stuff like that, I'm like, that's fine. I don't care about that. That's, that's Yeah, civil union, go for it. And by the way, they had that, right, in most of those states, Okay. So the whole idea, the whole problem with the redefinition of marriage is that if the state defines marriage as, you know, as including homosexual couples, what it means is that it can enforce that decision on the entire populace, right? It can force Christians, right, into recognizing same-sex marriages. And that's exactly what happened, right? I mentioned that guy in Colorado, right? But look, I don't know if you understand this this has been uh, such a huge thing, like schools, like Christian schools, Christian schools like are, have been, have been um, destroyed by this because if they don't recognize same-sex couples, they can be sued into oblivion, right? They can be denied funding, all this kind of stuff. So what's happened is all this persecution has come on Christian schools. Lots of Christian schools, Christian schools have just abandoned accreditation completely, Right. But then people don't want to go to their school because it's not accredited. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's so many ways that Christians have already suffered in the exact ways that we predicted would happen if same-sex marriage was recognized. Because again, when Christians were generally in power, you know, I'm speaking in very general terms, right? The vast majority of us were fine with things like civil unions, right? Like we're we're not trying to persecute people who identify as gay, right? The issue is what the government can do to people who believe in traditional marriage once it tries to define marriage itself. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's why I think the government should just get out of the the business of defining marriage. Just have legal... You know, contracts essentially that the state recognizes. And then that's fine. If a, if a gay couple wants to be recognized by the state with their union, as long as conservatives are not pushed into a place where we have to recognize that or we get persecuted, which, by the way, is, is like it's so obvious that this is happening on. And it just it started with the gay issue. But now it's moved to everything, right? I said now it's transgender. Now it's like vaccine stuff. You know, now it's like, it's it's just exploding everywhere. Like the, like all this justification of censoring conservatives on social media all over the place. Like it's it's gone out of control, which is exactly what we were worried about back, you know, 10, 15 years ago when we were fighting on this issue. It wasn't because like, at least, you know, for, for most of us, that most of the ones I've talked to, it's not like, like, I don't, I If two people want to sleep together, if God's not going to stop them, I'm not going to stop them, right? Like, that's fine. Go ahead. You can do it, okay? But again, it it has to do with the persecution aspect that has has surely come to pass at this point. Yeah, thank you, Pastor Dennis.
1: I feel like um, it was a really good intro.
0: Yeah, man. It's my pleasure. And I, I appreciate you guys. I know that, look, for a lot of us that are, you know, growing up on the coast, it's hard to hear a lot of this stuff. You know, and so I just want to honor you guys for, you know, I don't see any super offended faces looking at me right now. So thank you for not being crazy offended with me and for hearing me out. And, um, and yeah, at the end of the day, like I said, I think we can disagree on some of these things, but the most part of these, we're one, we're one body, we're family. Right, we're spiritual family, and so I pray for you guys that the Lord would lead you in all this because I know that this is these are such difficult issues, you know, to get clarity on what's right or wrong, you know, and then to, and then to get conviction on it. So I pray the Lord lead you guys, and um, and I'll just tell you, like, Nick is like one of the greatest pastors you guys can have. You guys are so blessed to have Nick as your pastor.